Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Dr. Andy Wilzak. This week, I'm talking to Dr. Jamie Goodall from the U.S. Army Center for Military History about her recent book, Pirates of the Chesapeake Bay, From the Colonial Era to the Oyster Wars. This is episode 29 of Untenured Tracks. dissertation into a monograph so um, I took a step back from that to write the book on Pirates of the Chesapeake but uh, so I'm back to it and I'm really excited about that. So what's it what's it about? So this follows Pirates in the Caribbean and Mm -hmm. it's focusing on how they shape consumer choices and how they shaped people's tastes in the Caribbean mm-hmm. by bringing goods and products to the Caribbean that they might not otherwise have brought to certain islands. Wow. So, like, what kind of stuff? So, you know, you might have spices that were being shipped specifically to North America, but stopping over uh, in the Caribbean, pirates stealing those goods might drop them off at an island that wasn't prepared to have them. Mm-hmm. So, it might introduce something new to them so what do you mean by not prepared like like this is just like an unexpected surprise that we've got <laughs> like all of this yeah. cinnamon or something is yeah. here now right so you have ships that you know are coming in and out mm-hmm. and you're prepared for those ships and the goods that they're bringing but merchants and consumers when pirates come along uh the, it's unexpected and so there's no you know, guarantee of pirates coming and going. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's always sort of a surprise when they do show up. Hmm. Um, so, so okay. So we're we're talking about like changes in local economy. And what else did you mention? Um, as far as like the monograph in your dissertation. Yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> okay. Um, so tell us about the the book that you've just had come out because I know lots of people are really excited about that. So it's Pirates of the Chesapeake Bay from the Colonial Era to the Oyster Wars. Mm -hmm. And essentially what I did was I broke the book up um, chronologically Mm -hmm. into major time periods. So the Colonial Era, the American Revolution, the New Nation and the War of 1812, um, the Civil War and the Oyster Wars. And then within those time periods, I broke it up into stories um, so different individuals or different collections of individuals and just basically went through their story. Um, that way you can sort of read the book out of order if you wanted to. There's no, um, there's no specific transition between the stories. So they're all sort of self-contained. Mm-hmm. So how did you like, so I've been reading like the very early parts of the book and, I, um, I'm just curious because I'm not a historian. Um, how did you, how are you able to find records of of these pirates from like the early days of the American colonies? So the Library of Congress has a really great collection of pirate trials from mm-hmm. the 17 and 1800s. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had a bunch of records from my research trips to the UK. 
uh, and to Jamaica and stuff like that, which talked about uh, piracy in the in the region. Um, so most of it's uh, Board of Trade records and uh, the office, the, the colonial office records. Mm-hmm. A number of the colonial office records have been digitized, which is very helpful. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting just because I think that, and you probably experienced this a lot too when you were teaching, that people have, I think, a lot of preconceived notions about what piracy was like. And yes. all the stories that, you were, that you're telling are just like, here's a guy um, who got a ship, who went wild for a little while, <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then just kind of sailed off into the sunset and was never heard from again. Right. <laughs> Which is like it's it's not super dissimilar from the stuff that I'm doing with like I just like take like gang stuff for example where like a lot of people think that every gang every kid in a gang is like some high end like drug kingpin or something like that and most of the times they're just like poor kids who made a who find themselves in a bad situation right right like the piracy stuff was very similar to that oh um, absolutely I, I, at least where I'm at now in the book. Um, I was really, I really liked the the story about, and I forget their names, um, because I'm my brain is fried from um, all the alone time with my kids I've had for <laughs> the last two weeks. <laughs> um, but I, uh, I'm really interested in like revolutions historically, and so I I liked the story that you told about the guy. Um, or the pirates that were like being used by the colonies to attack other colonies, like the Virginia Maryland kind of rivalries. Um, I thought that was so interesting because I think like just how we do American history in public school, like we never think about the colonies as ever being rivals over stuff, much less employing or just like turning a, a, a blind eye to like piracy that's happening <laughs> in my name to uh, attack other people. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so uh, what's happening in the colonies during the revolution is, of course, you have the patriots and the loyalists. Mm -hmm. And uh, throughout Maryland and Virginia, you had a divide between patriots and loyalists. And so the pirates, uh, who were operating, of course, as privateers at this point, um, they're seeking out loyalist hotspots to attack and try to wipe out those loyalist hotspots to open up the harbors for uh, their own naval ships. Uh, Of course, we have a fledgling Navy, which is why we're relying so heavily on privateers, Mm -hmm. Um, but also to open up the harbor for support from, like, the French, for example. Um, So that's pretty much what was happening in terms of that divide uh, throughout Maryland and Virginia. And what about during the English Civil War? Because you talk about that, and you talk about that briefly. Uh, so, well, the English Civil War uh, is sort of a minor aspect, um, but uh, I would say that a lot of that had to do, again, with competition between those who are loyal to one side versus the other mm-hmm. and just trying to um, root out the, the opposition. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, sorry, I didn't mean to, to catch you off guard. Like I said, it's something that I've been obsessed with and the chance to dork out overwhelmed me. Um, so how did you, how, like, what was it about piracy that like, attracted you as an area of study? 
I've always had a fascination with the ocean. Uh, it's my happy place. My dad was in the Navy when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. uh, so for the first eight years of my life, it was spent by the ocean. Um, I did my bachelor's degree in archaeology, which was the furthest thing from the ocean <laughs> that I could do at the time. Because uh, I was in the mountains of Boone, North Carolina, so there's no underwater archaeology happening. Um <laughs> And then I went on to do a master's degree in museum studies, and as part of that, you had to take a certain number of regular history courses. Mm -hmm. So I found myself taking a European imperialism course, and in one of the readings, I came across uh, a quote that compared Sir Francis Drake with Sir Henry Morgan, arguing that Morgan was England's second Drake, and I, I wanted to know more about that comparison because I felt like... They might have had similar trajectories, but I felt like they, they were very different individuals. And so that's sort of what got me started into piracy. Mm -hmm. And when I applied to the Ph.D. programs, uh, the woman who had become my advisor asked if this was something I was interested in pursuing further. And so we decided to make piracy my doctoral research. That's incredible. <laughs> How? So what were you – so your undergrad – archaeology to museum studies to history like what and this is really just more of like a personal question i guess what what attracted you to the museum studies part of it so when i was working on my archaeology degree one of the requirements was a an archaeological dig which we did at the biltmore estate in north carolina and the first week i herniated three discs in my back <laughs> <laughs> And so I found that um, archaeology was literally backbreaking work, and I wasn't sure that I could pursue that long term. So uh, I was trying to figure out what I could do with my fascination and interest in archaeology that didn't translate to field work. And I was like, well, working with the artifacts still gets me working with the materials that I'm so fascinated by, but I don't actually have to do the digging part. Yeah. And so that's me to museum studies was that I could work with those objects, um, but not be the one digging them up. <laughs> I I have like sympathy back pain <laughs> for <Yeah>. you. <laughs> what like do you know how you hurt? Like was it just like like a freak accident that you hurt yourself, or were you like trying to pick up something that you probably shouldn't have? In my mind, it's like a giant treasure chest. <laughs> I should say. Yeah. <laughs> of things um getting the site prepared uh it had been dug before and so we were returning to the dig so part of it was we were lifting very heavy logs that held the tarps down i think that was one part of it and the other part is just being hunched over all day uh i mean you're hunched over for eight nine hours at a time and i think the combination of the things just my back wasn't having it <laughs> this wasn't meant to be well i mean everything worked out okay for you though it did. Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, you just kind of by a happy accident ended up as, like, in my mind, the leading authority on pirates. <laughs> <laughs> it was a happy accident, yeah. <laughs> um, and when I told my... I, I had a break away from Mario Kart to come down and interview you, but I told my daughter who I was talking to, she's very excited. So... <laughs> <laughs> You're like, wow, that's pretty cool. Um, so how's the how's the uh, transition like from the dissertation to the monograph going? It's going. I got the reader report last year from uh, the 
uh, LSU press reviewer, and it was brutal. <laughs> uh, necessarily brutal. Yeah. But they made some great points, and there are definitely some issues that I need to address. So it's taking me a little while, especially now where – uh, any research trips I was thinking about taking are totally dashed for the time being. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, I totally understand getting that like that the sensation of that email from your from your editor or whomever. Like, part of you yeah. is like, thank goodness it's finally ready, and then that it's quickly consumed with like blind anger. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I had fourteen pages of like like sentence by sentence it's on my book and whoever did it i love you you were great but man i was so mad <laughs> um right, yeah it was it was rough and i still have a hard time i had to put it away for a while because i was like i just i can't i can't do it right uh-huh. now yeah oh yeah i don't think anybody should be expected to work <laughs> right now especially <laughs> um so how is that um, so obviously, I mean, the topic is very broadly the same, but like, how has the experience of doing the research on the Caribbean been different for you than the the sort of sidetrack you took to the Chesapeake Bay? I mean, besides like, obviously, the locations that you have to travel to, I imagine are are different. Like, how else has that experience been different for you? Uh, writing a local history, it was actually a stressful in a different way whereas the academic monograph is stressful because you're writing it for your peers and for the the field as a whole and you you want it to be academically rigorous so that's stressful Mm -hmm. but writing a local history you know that people who are from the area are going to be your target audience and you want to get the story right for them Mm -hmm. and i know in baltimore in particular uh, especially when you're talking about the era of the American Revolution or the War of 1812, um, Baltimoreans get really upset if you call them pirates because they're like, no, they were heroes, they were privateers. Uh, and so trying to navigate that balance was really stressful of, of telling the story and getting it right, um, mm-hmm. but also not offending the local populace. <laughs> <laughs> and so have they been pretty happy with the book? Um, I've got five reviews on Amazon so far and all five of them have been extremely positive. So I'm good. I'm, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> you haven't gotten any, like, you haven't looked out your window and seen like a Baltimorean, like pirate flag, like <laughs> sailing by or anything like that. <laughs> They're coming after you like a Scooby-Doo kind of situation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Okay, so you've got like the local history versus the academic rigor. Um, how else have the have the has the experience been different for you? It was a lot easier to write the local history in terms of the research aspect of it. Mm-hmm. It's because I'm not making any brand new claims or any arguments. I'm literally just telling a story. So I was able to rely a lot more on uh, previously written records. Um, it was easy to pop over to the Maryland Historical Society to look at stuff, um, obviously not having to travel very far. Um, and most of the local records have been very well kept, which is really nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we're talking about Pirates of the Caribbean, a lot of times the records that you need just aren't there. And so uh, I would say one of the major differences was that it was a little bit easier research-wise to write the the parts of the Chesapeake Bay mm-hmm. book. 
So what kind of um, arguments are you are you trying to make in the in the new monograph? Um, essentially that pirates, not necessarily the good guys, but that pirates were economically beneficial to certain islands in mm-hmm. the Caribbean, um, particularly those who were uh, struggling under embargoes during incessant warfare. Um, one of the issues that I ran into in the reader report is that uh, because this was my dissertation and I finished it in 2015, that's the same year that books like Mark Hanna's book and um, his name just left my brain, but oh, Kevin McDonald's book, um, both of those came out after I'd written my dissertation. Mm-hmm. Um, they're making very similar arguments <laughs> to what I was making. So I'm having to sort of rethink or reframe my argument, and I'm mm-hmm. not quite sure how I'm going to do that just yet. Okay. Um so what kinds of, of things are are you seeing them bringing in that were embargoed or like like how how is it because we talked about like spices and like this unexpected deliveries and stuff but like what else are how do i ask this like what are some of the other like benefits to piracy um economically speaking because again i'm thinking about this like from a crime perspective and it makes i can see like a thousand examples in 2020 of how this stuff or like in the last even like century of, of how that works. Um, but I, I'm guessing that people who've been listening to this haven't really thought about piracy in that way before. So like how I guess dumb it down for me is <laughs> like, like broaden it. Um, how, how is this, how is this happening? How is this working? Yeah. Um, so to give you an example, say an Island has been, uh, has gotten used to working, uh, trading with the Dutch and gathering Dutch East Indies goods um, because the Dutch East Indies company was very good, uh, much better than the English in many respects in terms of gathering goods and profiting from them. And then say you have the Anglo-Dutch war break out and all of a sudden you're not allowed to purchase from the Dutch Mm -hmm. because you're at war with the Dutch. Pirates could then sort of work as a middleman to because they're stealing those goods anyways, mm-hmm. is stealing the goods from the Dutch and bringing them to the island if they know that the islanders are expecting or wanting those goods. Mm-hmm. So, they're, so they're, that's what I embargo. So there's there's obviously like agency among people who were involved in piracy, right? Because I think the stereotype is, like I said before, like just like this raging madman on a ship full of drunks. <laughs> and... <laughs> And just like acting as agents of chaos, but really, it, it sounds like the reality of it is the while that certainly happened in some cases, like there's a lot more intentionality with what they're doing. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have to have merchants who are willing to fence the goods for you. Um, you have to have uh, inhabitants who are willing to purchase the goods from that merchant. Then, um, and you have to have government officials who are willing to to sort of turn a blind eye to what's happening so there's definitely intentionality happening um i know for example in new york uh with captain kidd uh belmont and robert livingston start out by encouraging him to get a privateering license but really they expected him to go pirating in the east indies and the area became known as the nest of pirates so uh, 
these individuals are seeking out pirates in a lot of cases. Um, pirates can't just show up and say, here's some stuff. You want to buy it? Um, they have to have willing participants. <laughs> like an, like an old Times Square kind of guy in like the trench coat with a bunch of watches inside. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so as you're doing the research for, for the Chesapeake Bay book and also um, for the one you're doing now, have you come across either like individuals or just stories that are your favorites? I would say, so out of the Chesapeake Bay book, one of my favorite stories is the women of the Dancing Molly. Mm-hmm. Um, the Dancing Molly was an oyster pirate ship. And the men on board were in Virginia waters pirating oysters and the governor of Virginia, Cameron, got wind of this. And so he went out with a, a crew to seize the ship, thinking it'd be really easy to take the ship since the men were out pirating the oysters and they weren't on board, maybe leaving behind one or two men. Um, but what they didn't know was that one of the men's wives and daughters were was on board the ship. And when Governor Cameron issued the warning shots, the women decided to make sail and they sailed from the Virginia waters to the Maryland waters to get out of his jurisdiction. All the while, people are on the shore cheering them when they realize that it's women who are escaping the governor. <laughs> and what was the name of the what was the name of the ship? Or like you said, the something Molly's. The dancing Molly. The dancing Molly. <laughs> so, what is it? What is it about that story that has like stuck with you or stood out to you? I, I think it's the fact that the vast majority of the stories told in the book are about men mm-hmm. because the records that we have about pirates is that the, they were men. Um, any records we might have had about women being involved, uh, by and large, we just don't have those records. Mm-hmm. And so to have women in the story was really fascinating for me. So what happened to the to the women on the Dancing Molly after they got away? Like, do, do they just vanish in the records or... Yeah, I don't have any records of them after that. Can we speculate on like what could have happened to them? Um, I would say that they waited for the men to come back on board, and they went and returned to their normal lives. Um, and probably we, sold oysters that they had pirated, and yeah, uh, just this one-off kind of thing. Because like yeah. the the movie version of it would be like then they enter into a life of piracy themselves. Yeah, they take over the ship, throw the throw the dad overboard, um, <laughs> and go from there. Um, yeah. <laughs> so when you were when you were teaching, um, were you able to talk about this stuff in your classes? Uh, I didn't really get to talk about the Pirates of the Chesapeake Bay stuff, just because I wrote it over the summer, and mm-hmm. then I changed jobs. Um, and so it didn't really make it into any of my classes. But I have taught, when I was teaching, a couple of Pirates of the Caribbean or mm-hmm. Pirates of the Atlantic courses. Mm-hmm. And so I got to bring in some of my research, uh, especially the primary sources I would use with the students. Um, so that was a lot of fun. So um, how uh, how was it teaching those classes? Like, what kinds of, of I guess preconceived notions did students come in with or like what were their prejudices about like what did they expect out the class was going to be just like a a semester of johnny depp or or what yeah they, I think they expected it to just be um very generic uh pirates talked like this they you know <laughs> uh 
the whole mythology, you know, eye patches, peg legs, mm-hmm. the whole nine yards. Um, so one of the first things we did was, of course, do some pirate myth busting, um, which was a very useful exercise, talking about some of the things that might have been true, um, but talking a lot about how most of this is uh, coming from popular uh, culture, uh, our, our notion of pirates. So what kind of myths would you would you talk about? So one of the myths is that the eye patch was used to allow men to go up and down in the hull of the ship and come up, mm-hmm. and it was for depth perception. In reality, if they were wearing an eye patch, it was probably because they lost their eye. <laughs> um, <laughs> the idea of keeping parrots as pets um, – they certainly would have stolen exotic birds. Uh, they were well known to take monkeys as well, but they wouldn't have kept them as pets. They were prized commodities, so they would have sold them. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, pirates didn't talk the way that uh, we think that they would have talked, a la Johnny Depp. Mm-hmm. Um, that comes from Robert Louis Stevenson, the 1950s, where Robert Newsom plays uh, Long John Silver. Uh, he has this... Uh, East accent, um, and he really plays it up, and so that's where we get the talk like a pirate. So, what, uh, like, how did students react to having their bubble burst? Uh, a lot of them were disappointed. Uh, it's sort of like when I was teaching early America, and a, a young girl found out that John Smith and Pocahontas didn't actually have a thing. Um, she was very, so it was was sort of like that sense of disappointment that what they've known their whole lives is a lie. But once they get past that disappointment, they find that pirates were actually a lot more fascinating than the myths would have you believe. So, uh, they got over it pretty quickly. Uh, they're destroying some poor girls, (laughs) fairy tale (laughs) vision of Pocahontas and like, oh, and by the way, it's actually a super racist and terrible story. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you feel comfortable talking about leaving academia at all? Yeah, that's fine. So, uh, how did how is that? What is that like? <laughs> it was a big transition. Uh, it was definitely a very tough choice for me because I absolutely love teaching, um, but it was just something that I felt like I didn't know that if I could do it long term. Um, just with a lot of the uncertainty around academia as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when the opportunity came about uh, to find an alt-act job, which I hate alt-act, but a, a job outside of academia, uh, I decided to take a chance. And it's worked out pretty well for me so far. So can you talk a little bit about where you're at? Are you, I mean, if you can't say, that's, that's fine. But I, I'm curious about like, what type of work you're doing there. So I work for the federal government. Technically, I work for the Army, um, but I work for the Center of Military History out of D.C., um, and basically we are responsible for writing Army histories, for uh, constructing lineages for various units, um, conducting oral histories with various Army officials uh, to get their stories down, especially before they uh, retire from the Army. Um so yeah, basically we are the the record keepers 
for for the army. So I'm curious about the oral history part. So is that more for like putting together somebody's biography or is that more for just like get everybody's um like various perceptions or like perspectives rather on like a specific incident or like what does that look like? Yeah, I think that um, biographies are are definitely a possibility when we're conducting oral histories. But I think a lot of times it's to get a sense of what's happening on the ground during particular events. Mm -hmm. So especially like when we're talking about individuals who have been involved for quite some time with the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, getting those perspectives, particularly over time, is really important to telling the story. Um, If we're to write an organizational history of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, you need the perspective of those who are on the ground, who have been part of the decision-making processes, um, and who have experienced the event. So So you could... The majority of what we do the oral histories for. So conceivably, you could be talking to everybody from just like regular guys who enlisted regular men and women who enlisted to potentially like people further up the chain. Right. Yeah. And that's all just to like, make sure that we've all got. And so what do you do in those situations where you might have like conflicting, um, perspectives on, on something that happened? Uh, I think it depends on what it's a conflicting story about mm-hmm. um, and whether or not we need to find additional sources to to get to the bottom of it. Um, sometimes you just tell both perspectives. Mm-hmm. It's just easier that way to say, according to so-and-so, this is what happened, yet according to this person, this is what happened, and sort of leave it up to the reader. But I think a lot of times you want to go and find additional sources to try to parse out which perspective might be more accurate. Mm-hmm. So you, I'm guessing that you just joined a team that's been doing this work kind of ongoing, right? I mean, because the wars have been right. going on for so, for so long at this point. Um, yeah. I mean, my team has been doing a lot of this work for a long time. So I'm being the newbie. I haven't really delved into any of the work yet. Um, I've been tasked with getting myself up to speed with various military histories. So um, reading a lot right now mm-hmm. uh, to get myself prepared to do some writing, um, particularly a lot of stuff on World War II. I think we have some materials that are going to be coming out about the war in the Pacific and the war in Europe, and they really want me to be involved with the war of the Pacific materials. So definitely have to get myself up to speed with that. <laughs> um, can you talk about a little bit, like in a little bit more detail, what you've been reading about the war in the Pacific? Like, is it is just just like records that you have access to now because you're working there that's like just internal type of stuff or is this like here's a stack of popular press books we want you to read (laughs) or yeah right now it's just been books for the most part Mm -hmm. um so for example i just read uh what i assume is sort of like a biography of um eichelberger and his experiences with MacArthur. And it's definitely a book that's very anti-MacArthur, which was very interesting. Uh Um, But just about the experiences in the Pacific, uh, going from island to island, and how those operations took place. Mm -hmm. So I think that's um, kind of getting to, I think, what I probably meant when I was trying to be very vague about, like, different perceptions or perspectives. I don't know why I keep saying it the wrong way tonight. Um, But, like, I mean, MacArthur is obviously, like, a 
kind of a polarizing guy, right? And so I, I guess I'm just curious how how a a center that is technically part of the federal government would like handle something like that, where, like I said, not everybody was a big fan of MacArthur, and what do you do, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's definitely a delicate balance. Um, but as long as you're, you know, in my mind, at least, as long as you're quoting from someone and you can attribute that information to a particular individual and they're fine with that, um, I think, you know, you can tell those stories about how, you know, maybe not everybody was down on MacArthur. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can use the words of people who experienced their time with MacArthur Um and so it's not us making a judgment call on MacArthur. It's them telling the story. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just like making sure that everybody's out there. I mean, it's a really, it's really interesting. Um, I, I find myself doing that in class a lot. I mean, I taught this revolutions class and it's something that I've been really borderline obsessed with. And like even this, this other project I have about the history of crime in, in the 20th century and just like finding ways to approach undergraduates and say like here's a person that you thought was universally great maybe they weren't (laughs) right Right? and that people are complicated (laughs) and it's okay to have more than one thought in your head (laughs) at a time about about like a given event or a given person i think is a really fun kind of challenge i guess and so i imagine you're probably like you get to live that challenge now uh, most definitely. <laughs> um, how so? How do I ask this without sounding like really stupid? Um, okay, so I'll put it like this. So I've I've talked to a lot of people who've been on the show in the past about the idea of being objective. Because um, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know what your grad school experience was like, but for me, we were like beat over the head with this idea of sociology is meant to be objective, and you do what the data says, and and that's that. Right. Um, but since then, I mean, I, I finished my dissertation almost 10 years ago. Um, like I've seen a new generation of academics coming up who are more open to the idea that objectivity is a myth, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> that, uh, like everybody has their own biases and everybody has their own politics. And of course that's going to come into the classroom. Um, I was just wondering as a, as a historian, um, who is now has at least a little bit of experience working um, outside of academia. Like, how do you view objectivity in your work? Yeah, I have to agree with those who argue that objectivity might be a myth in the sense that I don't think we can ever be 100% truly objective just because our own personal biases, our own personal thoughts and perceptions are always going to come into play. Um, maybe not necessarily in what we write, but it affects our research and the documents we ultimately rely on and look at, um, what documents we choose not to look at or choose not to incorporate into our writing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing because we have to figure the historical records that we're looking at don't have objectivity either. They were created for a purpose and you know, if we're looking at a diary or journals or letters of somebody, they they had something particular in mind when they were writing this, and they wanted a particular perception of who they were when they constructed it. 
So there's not really objectivity there either. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of subjectivity to what we do as historians. The best we can do is try to tell the story with all of the evidence that we can gather and try to be as objective as possible. But I don't think that it really works out that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, especially, again, like when you're trying to tell these complex stories in in a world that is... Uh, I don't want to be super cynical, but like not really open to complex stories so much yeah. <laughs> uh, that, that really just want is, I mean, like I have a lot of students who come in and just want to think about crime as like good versus evil. Right. Yeah. And very clearly that's not how it, how it works. Um, and that's not how it's ever worked at all. Um, and they get sometimes really mad <laughs> when I, when I have to tell them like, that's not, it's just not true. Right. Um, and again, to like go back to the revolution stuff, like when I, I talk about, um, like events from the American revolution and, and we'll say like, you know, George Washington was kind of a, not the best. (laughs) Right. And, and I think, I think more, more recently Thomas Jefferson has been like reframed. And so maybe he's a better example. Right. And so like, you know that Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence and like, oh yeah, we know most of them know that. But then to like go into other parts of his background um, and framing it against like 20th or 21st century ideology is difficult when you're 18 years old. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> and it's, just, it's just interesting to me that, I don't know, I, I feel like I'm the, the, the quarantine has maybe turned my brain into mush <laughs> and I can't answer, I can't ask you the question that I've I've been wanting to ask for a while like it's not coming out um that's okay uh so is there like specific parts about like getting to do this almost living history of of the wars that you're particularly excited about or that you're really interested in, in the chance to do or is it or are we still too new to this I think I'm a little too new still, but I mean, I know for me, if we're talking like everybody has a specialty, like maybe it's World War One, maybe it's the Korean War, mm-hmm. but everybody has like the thing that they're really interested in. And for me, the thing that I'm really interested in is the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I don't know how much of that is just because I've lived that experience for mm-hmm. so long, particularly my husband has deployed Uh, multiple times Mm -hmm. in the course of his military career in support of those operations. Um, But yeah, that's the, that's the time period and that's the subject matter. That's the most interesting to me. Um, So, I mean, you kind of answered it already because we've lived through it and you obviously have a a very close connection to it. Is like, what about it intellectually speaking is, is appealing to you? I think I'm just fascinated by the the culture there and the uh, political structure there and sort of what it was that we intended to do when we went in versus what we actually did um, and why why our plans to promote a certain framework of democracy doesn't work there mm-hmm. and I, I'm curious as to why and like all of the inner workings of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I imagine you've done a lot of stuff on like 
well, obviously, you would have had to, like, decisions made within the Bush White House, right? And and so you've been thinking about, like, how the war was framed at all? Does that come into your into your work? Yeah, I think that's also something that's really interesting to me is just how how we framed it in terms of the government, how we framed it in terms of the military, and then how we framed it in terms of the American people mm-hmm. uh, and what those different venues look like. That's really interesting. I mean, I, I mean, I was in college when it happened, <laughs> so I feel like I've been living it for for so long. As I'm, I mean, a lot of people have that same that same feeling. It's just it's just strange to me that it's been going on for so long that now we have like historians who are <laughs> like, let's <laughs> let's go back to the halcyon days of the 2000 election. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And go through that when it seems like we're still litigating it. I don't know. I mean, that's, I think mean, that's awesome. And I, I, I wish you well in, in exploring that. I'm very curious to see like any kind of new ideas that can come out of, of that time period. I mean, it's just so polarizing even still. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I did. And I guess that's a good example of like trying to be objective too. Because I don't, I don't know that I could be objective with that specifically, but certainly there are much smarter people than me out there. <laughs> <laughs> um, is there anything else that you have uh, you're going on that's going on that you're interested in or that you want to talk about that you're excited about? Uh, I'm just really excited about my new job and just finally getting into what I'll be doing. So. Um, looking forward to seeing what that holds for me and uh, especially right now I'm at Fort McNair still getting accustomed to things going through training essentially and eventually I'll be moved to the Pentagon and so I'm really excited about that look at you I know somebody who's going to be at the Pentagon (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome Um, congratulations Jamie on the book and the job and everything and thank you so much for coming on the show thank you Hey, Andy Wilzak again. So, I uh, hope you enjoyed this week's show as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all of the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, this show thrives on word of mouth. So, we are doing this completely through social media. All of the guests that we've had are people that I found on Twitter. So, if you are untenured and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come on the show and hype your stuff, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at UntenuredTracks or me at HeyDrWill. That's H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L. Please send me a message on one or both accounts and we will book you on the show. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. I know that a lot of our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody. So again, please rate and review the show. Tell your friends, tell your people about this, and I'll see you next week. Bye.